Hello, friends, and welcome to the second part of our interview with Dr. Brenda McPhail from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association about the ever-confusing neurotechnology. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the first episode, you might want to go back and check that out. You know, get used to that confusion before you embed yourself in this confusion. Because as you're going to see, it's pretty darn confusing. We're going to kick things off with one of my reflections from about halfway through a previous chat. And the reflection goes a little bit like this. On a good day, I don't know who I am. I struggle with my identity all the time, and that's part and parcel of me being a human being, is it not? Some days I feel like a great husband. Other days I don't. Some days I feel like I'm a hockey player. Sometimes I feel like a really effective educator. And there are days where I just refuse to identify that way because I'm tired and I'm having trouble communicating to my students. So where does that leave me? What does that say about who I am as a professional? What does that say about who I am as a person? My point is simple. Who I am changes. It's fluid. It's a reflection of my confidence and my willingness to embrace my imperfections and the things that make me a productive, happy, you know, fun-loving person. And the reason why I'm sharing this is because I don't know how and whether neurotechnology can resolve any of these fluidities. Let me put it this way. Could somebody who collects data from neurotechnology confidently figure out who I am despite the fact that I often don't know who I am? There's a tension here, and I'm wondering if it can be resolved through this technology. I think that's the dream. I don't think that in current implementations it's the reality, although, of course, there's a, a deep danger that you've sort of alluded to um, if they think they're getting something that's real and they're not. Mm -hmm. um, and that danger is less, I mean, there's, there's less danger inherent in the company that sells boots, getting the kind of boots that would deeply fulfill you as a human being at this stage in your life wrong. Um, but taking it, you know, moving out of the marketing realm and back into medical, moving back into criminal justice, uh, there's far, there's potential for far profounder implications if you have um, people using the technology, people measuring the results of the technology. Here, I'm going to focus in more again on the criminal justice system. It's a pet, yeah. pet place of mine to go. Um, if the people who are using the technology think they're right and it's wrong, the implications are massive. If the people using the technology, I mean, this is one of, there are all kinds of technologies in the world where if the technology is really good and effective, it raises particular kinds of risks. If the technology is one that people think is good, but it's not, it raises a whole different set of risks. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard to say which is worse. So, I mean, the, the current contemporary example is facial recognition technology. So we put facial recognition technology is technology that lets an image of your face be compared to another um, that connected to your, your name or your identity in order to determine whether the picture is of you. 
um, and that gets used in commercial contexts. It gets used in policing contexts. Uh, but the idea is we need to know who people are. Uh, that technology has been widely researched. It's really commonly understood that right now, even though it's getting better, it's still not very good. And where it's not very good is identifying faces that aren't middle-aged white men. So it's not great on women, even white ones, although it's better on white women than Asian women or black women. Uh, it's not good on youth. It's particularly not good on black youth. There's all kinds of ways in which the technology is flawed in ways um, that is not just discriminatory, but in some contexts has the potential to exacerbate racist tendencies, particularly mm -hmm. in, in law enforcement contexts. So that's the technology. Uh, so it's bad. If it got better, if it all of a sudden became capable of identifying every individual, regardless of the color of their skin or the, their age, with perfect accuracy, um, what that does is create a whole different problem because now instead of a technology that um, might discriminate because it doesn't identify you properly, it's a technology that allows discrimination by those who are interpreting the data who have implicit bias, mm -hmm. um, which you know we all know is a thing in society. Mm -hmm. So with that technology, it's one of it's. I always say it's. It's terrible that it's ineffective, and when it's and when it's refined, it's going to be so much worse. And I think the same holds true in a way for this sort of neurotech. So right now, um, it's not entirely clear whether it works or not. When you think about some of the the edge, the beginning kinds of applications of this that are not um, to do with electrodes on your head, but just to do with things like using image recognition, trying to determine how you're feeling based on the expression on your face. So if you're next to our facial recognition example, when it tries to figure out you know, what you're feeling, how emotional you are, whether you're paying attention, um, and this technology is being used in exam proctoring software for students, it's being used in schools, to try and figure out whether kids are paying attention. It's being used in malls to figure out whether shoppers are engaged with a particular display. There's a huge range of ways in which this sort of emotional inference technology is being used uh, to make decisions. And it might be decisions about whether we change the display, fine, whatever. Might be decisions about whether the kid gets promoted a grade level or not, more dangerous might be decisions about whether a kid gets punished for not paying attention as a result of a facial tick. Um, the problem then, of course, is, is the technology accurate? Is the technology effective enough that we can make determinations about the fate of a human being uh, based on how it works? And with these sort of emotional inferences, the general conclusion from data I've seen, and I'm not an expert in this field, but I've done a fair bit of reading, a lot of the inferences, depending on the particular application, is that it's um, not accurate enough to give certainty. The, the accuracy rate can range from anywhere from like 10 to 70%. It's usually not a heck of a lot higher. Um, so is that what degree of certainty do we, do, do we need that a technology is working in order to make consequential decisions about humans. The, the, 
we probably should have asked. That. I was going to say, Tommy, take a knee, buddy. I can see you're you're doing all right there, buddy. Uh, a question, a question, probably that that is on the minds of a lot of people is how would this neurotechnology be incorporated with us? Would this be a, a surgery that we would volunteer for and a a microchip planted in our brain? Would it be a, a body scan? What would, like, it, because that may actually change the whole course of ethics as well. If somebody voluntarily says, I want this chip put into my brain for marketing reasons or for uh, um, uh, uh, medical research reasons or, or something like that, that may change it from if we are, you know, putting it in our COVID-19 booster shot or something like that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um. So the, again, it's, it's going to depend on the domain. It's going to depend on the application. Um, in the medical realm, of course, you know, one of the key issues is around informed consent. Mm -hmm. um, in the military realm, um, you know, one of, the, one of the goals, and David Murakami Wood has done some interesting talks and, and work on this, uh, is creating super soldiers. So what does right. it mean when you're an enlisted officer or enlisted person to consent to an intervention that's going to make it more possible to do your job well? Um, what does it, you know, what, what is a super soldier? Mm -hmm. um, and what are the sort of ethical limits of adjusting human bodies and or human thinking uh, for purposes of you know, if we say it nicely, public safety, and if we say it a bit more critically, military might or military domination. I, I will guarantee you right now, if I could get the build of Captain America, my wife would sign me up right away to be a super soldier. <laughs> she would not, if you come back looking like that guy, you can go and get your brain worked on, Al. That's what she would say. I don't know that that's necessarily <laughs> on the horizon. <laughs> when I first started digging into um, ethical discourse in artificial intelligence. There were people saying that the way you ensure that artificial intelligence can be ethical is to make sure that enough people are at the table before an AI system is designed, at blueprinting, before data collection, well before that, before coding. You need to have lawyers. You need to have people as, such as yourself, Brenda. You need to have people from the Surveillance Study Center. You need to have educators. You need to have lawyers, politicians bureaucrats, bring them all together and have a conversation so that the very wide terrain of potential issues is very clearly mapped out. Not to put exponential pressure onto engineers to answer all of the questions, but make sure that the conversation is productive of the kinds of flag posts or signs that we would need to make sure that the system is responsible, to make sure that it's trustworthy, if that's possible. What is in your opinion, the status of the discourse for neurotech right now? Are people like you able to have a conversation with the people that are designing these, these technologies? Um, so that's, that's a bigger question than I'm really qualified to answer. So this is an area that I first became aware of because I got invited to do a talk and thought it sounded like an interesting topic. <laughs> um, as a result of the first talk, I had a chance to do another one and started talking with people who are, you know, spending their careers researching this area. In the kinds of policy conversations that I'm part of, 
by virtue of my, my work at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, particularly around privacy law reform, around AI policy in particular sectors, particularly policing. This kind of technology is not on the agenda. It's not one of the talking points. Um, it's seen as science fiction. It's seen as far away. Um, it's, you know, the pet project of Elon Musk, who's, you know, Neuralink wants to wire humans to computers. Um, and that sort of, you know, will cause people to nod and chuckle, uh, but then move on to something more immediate, more relevant, like, you know, whether or not de-identified data should be part of it within the scope of a privacy law <laughs> and being, you know, technical and nerdy here. But so certainly the kinds of conversations that I'm part of and I'm privileged to be part of, you know, more than the average person by virtue of my profession. These technologies are not really part of the conversation yet in realms where they probably should be, particularly around conversations about AI ethics and, and privacy. Um, how do we make that happen? It's a good question. Who needs to be part of those conversations? Another good question. Um, but I think what we could say with sort of without any, without any ambiguity is that um, the technology is moving way faster than the policy conversations currently reflect. Um, as I said at the outset, that this is one of those areas of human endeavor that has the capacity to change humanity um, in ways that are exciting and terrifying um, and that need to be thought through. I think your, um, your buddy who's the you know, tech prognosticator who said there's no such thing as a bad technology. Mm -hmm. Um, only a technology that's badly used. That's right. Isn't, yeah, yeah. Isn't entirely right. I think mm. we need to be having the public conversations about whether or not there are particular iterations or versions of a technology that permits uh, manipulations of thoughts or feelings or emotions that have such profound implications for humanity that we should talk about it being a no-go zone that there might be applications of this technology that are not, that don't have a beneficial edge that is worth, that is proportionate uh, to the risk of harm. And maybe after we have those conversations, I'm wrong. Maybe we can find a way to appropriately regulate and put up safeguards and guardrails around the, the aspects of those those versions of the technology such that we can guarantee that um, they are developed in a way that is focused towards public good and not harm, that they are only ever used by people who have good intentions and not bad, um, that we are focused on helping people uh, and not coercing or manipulating them. As I go on with these points, you'll hear the cynicism start to come through my voice <laughs> and the skepticism. Um, if, if we were successful in that, it would be the first time ever in human history. Right. Uh, but, but we could. And I mean, maybe it's not either. We've had good success uh, through political um, action and sort of global 
agreement on things like nuclear disarmament. That that's lasted for a lot, those kind of agreements about what we shouldn't do with a particular technology have lasted for a long time. I think that there's you know cracks appearing in that right now. Um, but maybe that's a maybe that's a counterexample to what I just said that there, there it's possible for humanity to come together and agree on on guardrails for technologies that don't stop its use but that stop some versions of its use. Uh, but again, these are the these are the kinds of ethical, moral, social, political, socio-technical conversations <laughs> that we need to start having, and and the range of stakeholders can't just be researchers and tech technicians and policy wonks. Um, it also has to be members of the public. It has to be members of the medical profession. It has to be people responsible for public safety. It has to be um, participants in the criminal justice system. It has to be sort of the, the spectrum of stakeholders that have the, you know, that are either going to be helped or harmed by different iterations or versions of these kinds of technologies uh, to decide. And, you know, we're talking about these technologies. I'm talking about these technologies as if it's a uniform thing. It's not. There's a whole bunch of diff different applications using a whole bunch of different technological tools with a whole bunch of different um, degrees of invasiveness um, into the mind and into the body. Um, so, we need to first of all sort of get a grasp on the on the complicated spectrum of tools that we're talking about when we talk about neurotech and then the realm of sectors that are going to be implicated and then the range of actors who need to be part of the public conversations to decide um, how we're going to deal with this and my pitch is that hopefully those conversations start with a grounding in our a global recognition that there are fundamental human rights at risk and that a rights-based approach to this technology is one that's um, has potential to help us make decisions that in the end are, are for good and not ill when it comes to protecting humanity. Sounds very grand, doesn't it? We're going to protect, make decisions to protect <laughs> humanity. <laughs> I can, I can honestly say, say Brenda, um, you have done absolutely nothing to get rid of confusion in this topic. <laughs> My work here is done. Thank you. <laughs> oh, what a fascinating, uh, honestly, the, the, wow. I mean, that's just it is I came in kind of expecting this conversation to be, you know, neurotech and just talking about what it is and, and things like that. But I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, Brenda, diving into, not just ethics, but ethics for the implication of 40 years down the road and the ethics of, all right, well, how do we grow the technology and everything? Uh, it, it just, and, yeah. And trying to do this from perspectives that are not our own. Exactly. Right? Yeah. The, the, the whole thing is, is just mind boggling. I am going to be spending a lot of time this evening potentially disassociating. And I'm fortunate that my, my wife's a mental health therapist because right. these I've never thought about these questions before. Yeah, yeah, never, yeah. never once have I have I ever entertained half of the questions and concern that that Brenda has has raised. I don't know much about neurotech. I know a lot more about it now, but mm -hmm. I also feel like I know absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. So I'm admittedly leaving this conversation very confused, and that's right. really productive. 
I like that I feel this way because I think I have a lot to learn. And I hope that that continues to be uh, an experience for a lot of the listeners of this episode as well. We have a lot to learn. Not not taking the time and space to recognize that and invest in it can be a real problem. And I, I really appreciate you uh, helping me feel a little bit uncomfortable on a Sunday afternoon, Brenda. <laughs> Sincerely, I really mean that. Thank you. Well, I appreciate all the questions that point out to me how little I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to another episode of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have a topic or guest in mind, don't hesitate to get in touch at WTNCast. Stay tuned for bi-weekly episodes and until next time, keep listening to the noise. <laughs>